I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Man, everything really is more expensive right now. I mean, like everything. I was getting ice cream today and it was just like $6 for an ice cream. I got eggs. Eggs were more expensive than normal. It's not so bad right now, but you know, recently I went to fill up my tank on the way home and I realized why I recently bought a motorcycle (laughs) so much cheaper. When I got home, I checked my electric bill. Man, well, with all these prices going higher and higher because of record inflation, if you're like me, you want to blame someone. You want to hold someone accountable. Was it Biden who did this, like the little stickers on the gas station over the summer said? Are prices going up and up because of COVID fallout? The war in Ukraine? Dare I say it, former President Trump? The short answer is yes, and yes, and all of the above. But obviously, it's not that simple. And then I think to myself, well, this sucks, but at least we're all affected, right? I mean, the 1% are also feeling the brunt, right? Because they like to buy stuff and they got to eat too. Well, you can imagine my fury then when I learned the god-awful but unfortunately not surprising truth. Corporate greed. Business couldn't be better for major corporations and their rich overlords. In fact, they've been reaping record profits the whole damn time. So while we're out here scrounging to fill up our gas tanks or pay our utility bills or pick up ice cream for our kids, they're making all the money hand over fist. And as you'll hear in the audio clips of several big-name companies' shareholder calls, they know it, and they couldn't be happier. Will they pass on all those exorbitant profits to help ease the pain of us customers? Hell no. Will they lower their prices, since they're making so much extra loot? Of course not. Will they cease the incestuous, and at one time illegal, business practices, such as buybacks, which exacerbate the inequity gap in this country, and pad billions upon billions into their coffers? (laughs) No. What's worse, even those corporate media outlets that we rely on for news are doing the same thing. The New York Times, the gray lady herself, spent $150 million on stock buybacks this year, while its employees have gone two years without a raise amid rising costs. I mean, are we living in the upside down? This is Manny Faces, co-producer, audio editor, and host of the multi-award-winning podcast Newsbeat where we cut through the mainstream media talking points and excuses by corporate and elected officials to give you the cold, hard truth through our incendiary blend of independent journalism and music, often including original lyrical contributions from brilliant independent hip-hop artists. Today, breaking all this down for us and shining a light on the deceptive connection between inflation and Wall Street are Dr. Rakeem Maboud, the chief economist and managing director of policy and research at the nonprofit Groundwork Collaborative, and Natalia Renta, Senior Policy Counsel, Corporate Governance and Power for the nonprofit Americans for Financial Reform. Now, just a quick reminder to rate, review, and follow this podcast wherever you listen to your favorites, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, we're on all of them. And also please subscribe to our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com. You'll get new episode drops, you'll get commentary, you'll get some bonus information, and much more. But for right now, let's find out what's really the deal with inflation. Buckle in. This is corporate profiteering during record inflation. What we do know is that corporate profiteering has played a big role in the inflation that we're seeing today. I know this because my organization, the Groundwork Collaborative, has been combing through earnings calls in sector after sector across the economy. 
Earnings calls are essentially conversations that executives at big companies have with their investors and their shareholders to let them know what happened in the prior quarter and what they can expect going forward. And actually by law, they're required to tell the truth, which is really revealing, right? Because you get a real sort of picture of what these guys, mostly guys, are thinking about on a day-to-day basis. And what we've heard in sector after sector, you know, company after company, is that inflation has been really, really good for business. You may have noticed that prices are going up on just about everything. And if you've been listening to companies talk about these price increases, you've probably heard a lot of crying. Woe is me. We have no choice but to raise our prices. Our labor costs are going up. Our inputs, our inputs. But that's a lie. Here's the truth about inflation. Companies love it. Love it. Love it. You see, when companies talk to investors about prices rising, they make it clear that this helps rather than hurts the business. So we we view a little bit of inflation as always good in our business. What I mean by that is that the general increase in prices that we've been seeing over the last, you know, several months, many months, has been a really good smokescreen to hide behind when they're raising prices a little bit more than what their increase in their input costs would justify. We've seen record corporate profit margins in this period. You know, in 2021, we saw the highest corporate profit margins ever. Our economy has been battered by a pandemic, a breakdown in the supply chain, and a war. So is that why we're seeing sky-high inflation? Or is a little greed sprinkled on top? According to this chart, what is the biggest driver of inflation during the pandemic? The blue is the, the dark blue is the recent period. It would be corporate profits. And what is that percentage? It is 54%, and that number does stay that level of high if you update that number to more recent numbers as well. Congresswoman Katie Porter brought her whiteboard out again to uh, inform the American people about what's really driving inflation. So over half of the increased prices people are paying are coming from increases in corporate profits. Yes, the unit price index is reflected in corporate profits as opposed to other costs. And how does that compare to historically to other periods of inflation or over other periods of economic time? As reflected there in other analysis, it is significantly higher in this recovery, 11.5%. And what is it today? Uh, 53%. And, you know, these executives on their earnings calls are actually really, really forthright about how good inflation has been for business. The executive at Kroger said in June of 2021, a little bit of inflation is always good in our business. And what he meant by that is inflation is a good cover for us to raise our prices and then raise them a little bit extra so we can skim it off the top and keep that and pad our pockets and pay that out to our shareholders. What we are seeing now is more income and wealth inequality in this country than we have seen in a hundred years. And this is an issue that if nobody else wants to talk about, we will talk about in this committee. The problem is not that a low-wage worker got a 50-cent raise two weeks ago and a $1,400 check from the government last year, as some of my Republican colleagues will suggest. The problem is that corporations are making record-breaking profits and over 700 billionaires in America became nearly $2 trillion wealthier during the pandemic while engaging in obscene levels of price gouging. I like to think about the 
inflation we're seeing today as really sort of the tip of an iceberg, right? This is a an issue that has been building for a really long time because of a series of policy choices we've made over the course of decades. The reason that these companies, especially big companies, have the ability to raise prices and you know gouge customers the way they're doing is because they have so much market power, right? And that is the the direct result of policy choices we've made to allow these companies to gain so much power in our economy, to really shape the system in a way that benefits them and their shareholders over anyone else. And in a moment of crisis, what they're gonna do is they're gonna take advantage of that power and use that power. And that's exactly what we're seeing in these earnings calls. Corporate greed is nothing new. It's been going on for a very, very long time. When we talk about why the American people are angry, why, among other things, we're seeing a spurt in the growth of trade unionism in this country, it has a lot to do with the fact that CEOs in large corporations now make 350 times more than their average workers. In addition to that, they receive stock options, golden parachutes, and a wide range of perks. Go to the CEOs, and meanwhile, working families are struggling to pay their bills, to feed their kids, to take a few weeks vacation, uh, and to save up for retirement. Families across the country are struggling to keep up with rising gas prices. In Orange County, California, the price of gas is nearly $6 a gallon, and the price has gone up $2 a gallon in just one year. These higher gas prices are also pushing up the costs for small businesses and grocery stores, contributing to the higher prices that families are paying for everything from food to furniture. These corporations are making record profits, the highest that they have been in over seven years, even as Americans are struggling. They plan to use these profits to buy back over $35 billion in stock, rather than investing in production to increase supply, transitioning to green energy, or bringing down the price at the pump. Oil and gas companies are reporting record-breaking profits for this past quarter. Those profits were in the tens of billions of dollars for just the past three months. For example, ExxonMobil pulled in nearly $20 billion in profit. Chevron took in more than $11 billion. Shell, $9.5 billion. BP, over $8 billion. And today, the world's largest oil company, Saudi Aramco, reported making $42 billion this quarter. This quarter. Oil companies, record profits today, are not because they're doing something new or innovative. Their profits are a windfall of war, a windfall from the brutal conflict that's ravaging Ukraine and hurting tens of millions of people around the globe. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. This is a widespread phenomenon, but I think one of the places you really see profiteering running rampant is in the energy sector. The petroleum and coal industries saw more than a thousand percent increase in profits in Q2 of 2022 compared to their pre-pandemic average in 2019. And we've heard this on the earnings calls. Chevron, which is you know someplace that I've probably filled up my tank and maybe you, you all have too, 
Chevron made $11.6 billion in quarter two, up from $6 billion last quarter, and up 247% from a year ago. Their CEO touted that quarter two as one of the strongest quarters they've had in more than a decade. We delivered another strong quarter, another quarter of strong financial results, with Rossi over 25%, the highest since 2008. Strong cash flow enabled us to fund this higher level of investment, pay down debt for the fifth consecutive quarter, and return more than $5 billion to our shareholders through dividends and buybacks. And they emphasized that it was really focused on generating returns instead of production because their production actually decreased in, even though they were really banking these monster profits. This is a common thread. Marathon, which is another big energy and oil and gas producer, said that they are uniquely prioritizing their shareholders as the first call on cash flow. So to de-wonkify that, what does that mean? You know, in all these like big syllable words, essentially, we don't really care about you even though you're struggling to put gas in your tank and drive your kids to school. And, you know, over the summer, we saw really, really high gas prices that were taking a massive toll on folks. What we care about is that this is a great opportunity for us to raise our prices and pay that out to our shareholders. Prices at the pump have hit a record high across the U.S. this holiday weekend. Nationwide, the average cost for a gallon of regular gas is $4.61. That's about $1.60 more than a year ago. The price of gas has climbed so high, it's actually pushing down demand. We see this in other sectors too. And, and the, the real concern here is that even as prices go up, even as inflation maybe starts to ease a little bit, we're not gonna see those prices come back down, right? These, these prices are gonna stay sky high. Driven Brands is a good example here. They run auto shops and car repair services. They really sort of were boasting on their earning call that the fact that they had provided an essential service, it made it much easier for them to take advantage of inflation. They said, quote, we offer non-discretionary needs-based services. That means even as prices rise, consumers continue to get their vehicles repaired, maintained, washed, and they're all changed, and it'll be very low on the list of services that are downside when spending a squeeze. So in other words, we know that our customers need us, and so we're gonna take advantage of that and raise prices even more. And we saw companies like Johnson & Johnson, which produces essentials like diapers, embarking on a similar strategy. We're not gonna see these prices come back down, unfortunately, because these companies have so much power, right? A good example of that is AutoZone. AutoZone CFO told investors in, in May that rising prices have benefited the company Quote, and as Sub said before, inflation has been a little bit of our friend in terms of what we see in terms of retail pricing. And then added afterwards, historically, we've never brought prices back down, even after we've raised them. We want to recognize our auto owners for their tremendous success this past year. They far exceeded our expectations from the beginning of the year. And in a very challenging environment, as our pledge states, put our customers first resulting in additional share gains and terrific sales performance on top of fantastic results in FY21. We grew our overall sales 11.1% on top of 15.8% growth last year, resulting in a two-year growth that is among the highest we've ever experienced. Importantly, I want to point out that our industry has been disciplined about pricing for decades, and we expect that to continue. Historically, as costs have increased, the industry has increased pricing commensurately to maintain margins. 
It is also notable that following periods of higher inflation, our industry has historically not reduced pricing to reflect lower costs. So, you know, this is a problem that we're seeing throughout the economy. I think it's really hitting consumers and families, especially on essentials, because, you know, we don't have the option to, to dial back on things that we need to live our lives, like gas, like rent, like diapers, right? And so these companies know that and they take advantage of that. The one that really sticks with me is the chief financial officer of Constellation Brands. This is a company that is a beer, wine, and liquor distributor. It owns brands like Modelo and Corona that you might have heard of. They said the quiet part out loud um, in January of this year when on an earnings call, the CFO said the company's strategy is to quote. We're going to look at this on a market by market basis, brand by brand basis, and we'll, we'll take as much pricing as we think the consumer can absorb. The company, you know, on the same call, boasted that it had funneled over $1 billion to Wall Street through stock buybacks in 2021 alone, and then subsequently beat expectations on earnings per share performance by over 12% in quarterly earnings. So short answer, they're raising prices on consumers and funneling that over to Wall Street. The debate around stock buybacks has to do with how companies use their cash. They have access to quite a bit of it right now. The tax cuts in 2017, relatively high earnings, and low interest rates have all added to corporate cash stockpiles. When a company is flush, it has options for what to do with its money. It can buy other companies. It can spend on research and development. It can buy new equipment, buildings, or technologies. Or it can return money to shareholders. This can take the form of dividends or stock buybacks. In the past 10 years, the top 20 companies on the S&P 500 bought back about 1.3 trillion in shares, with Apple leading the way by far. The stock buyback debate has drawn the ire of politicians on both sides of the aisle. In an editorial in The New York Times, Senators Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders pledged to introduce buyback legislation. Their bill would encourage companies to do something for workers before they could buy back stock and pledged to set minimum requirements for investment in workers and the long-term strength of the company as a precondition for a corporation entering into a share buyback plan. At the same time, Republican Senator Marco Rubio has suggested Congress raise the rate on capital gains to discourage buybacks. The mere suggestion Congress should address buybacks drew a swift response. This is basically legislators saying we know better how to deploy corporate capital than the managers in the business. Now, let's look to history again. Where has that led people? When government officials decide that they're the ones who can micromanage business, they're talking about exactly how much to pay people, how much benefits to give them, that they can't do share buybacks. Our economy is essentially captured by shareholders. Shareholders and Wall Street's sort of presence in every single corner of our economy is dictating a lot of the decisions that these companies are making. So early on in the inflationary crisis, Walmart and Target both said, look, we're going to keep prices low because we want to make sure that we maintain our consumer base. And we're not going to do this whole, you know, jacking up prices on consumers thing because we don't think it's a good strategy. As soon as they said that, they experienced a massive sell-off. Today, just weeks after reporting weaker than expected profits, Target says it will now voluntarily take another hit by marking down unwanted merchandise. News Nation's Paul Gerke is live outside of a Target. And Paul, is today's announcement from the retailer worrying investors? 
Yeah, at least a little bit, Nicole. Target's uh, stock price at one point today dipped as low as 7%. It closed the day on a bit more of an up note, down about 2.4%. Its CEO said it was important to be prudent about this, to get out in front of this issue. What you need to know can be distilled into a single sentence. There's about to be a big sale. And in a time where it seems like everything is costing more, that's no small thing. So shareholders revolted. They were like, absolutely not. We saw that this strategy worked in every other sector. We want you to do the same. And within the quarter, both Walmart and Target had, had decided to embark on the strategy of raising prices beyond what their input costs would justify. So, you know, even if companies, I wouldn't go so far as they're, they're trying to do the right thing, but they're trying to use a different strategy to maintain their profits and profit margins. The real pressure that, that Wall Street is putting on them to really jack up prices, earn record profits, is something that is part of that iceberg, right? It's one of those sort of underlying things that is baked into the way we've set up our economy. It, it ensures that these companies are prioritizing, maximizing their short-term returns, whatever the cost, whatever the cost to consumers, but also whatever the cost to their workers, right? These companies are not, by and large, raising wages for their workers. They are driving down labor standards. They are pushing more and more workers into becoming independent contractors where they have even fewer rights. And so there is a clear sort of cost and benefit here. And the people who are benefiting is Wall Street. For 40 years, the U.S.-led global economy has produced an enormous improvement in human welfare. Since 1981, the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty on less than $1.90 per day has fallen from 42% to 10%. But in countries with advanced economies, inequality of income and wealth has surged. And nowhere has it surged more than in the U.S., where reliance on free market forces has been strongest. That magnifies rewards for those at the top and leaves most others behind. I think the biggest issue is that there has been this belief that the purpose of companies is to maximize the value of shareholders as opposed to actually companies depend on the government to exist <laughs> um, and to survive. So, you know, they actually should be held accountable to all of the people that they affect. So their workers, you know, consumers, uh, taxpayers, like people across their supply chains, they should balance the interests of all these different stakeholders, including shareholders, right? But I think the second piece of that is that a lot of the way the financial markets work, the interest of short-term speculation of like, you know, wealthy shareholders is what tends to to dominate, right? So like this sort of quarter by quarter thinking and shareholders that are basically like trying to game the system. And there there are some hedge funds, for example, that like target certain public companies and they buy up a huge portion of the company and then they try to extract concessions for management, which can be actually are often like increased stock buybacks. So, you know, more more share of the uh, of the profits going to shareholders and like less investments in research and development and, and layoffs and all of these things. This didn't used to be uh, a practice that really happened before uh, before the 80s. So before 1982, 
companies didn't really uh, do stock buybacks because they were afraid that they could be held liable for market manipulation under the Securities Exchange Act. But in 1982, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, finalized a rule creating a safe harbor. If a CEO can make money simply by cutting his workforce, increasing profits, starving research and development, you're not going to feel the impact of that for years down the road. However, your stock will see an immediate impact from that. Further, Lazonic uh, last time he was on was talking about the stock buyback as another means in which to increase the value of your stocks. You have cash reserves, you have profits. Do you plow that money back into buying new machinery, research and development, employee training, or instead do you go on the stock market, buy back your stock and increase the value of the remaining stocks? The Securities and Exchange Commission has admitted it has no ability to enforce the main rule intended to prevent market manipulation when companies buy back their own stock and no intention to do so. In other words, in 1982, SEC adopted the rule 10B-18, which provided companies with a so-called safe harbor or an exception, if you will, on the idea of, of... potential criminal prosecution of market manipulation or even civil prosecution of market manipulation if they adhered to four principles or limitations. So basically a pretty major loophole. They created a system whereby if companies stay within uh, really generous parameters of how much stock they buy back that there's a safe harbor against liability. But the SEC doesn't actually currently even have the information they would need to even know whether uh, companies exceed the safe harbor. This has become uh, a growing issue in the more progressive corners of the Senate. Bernie Sanders has been talking about this considerably. Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from Wisconsin, sent a letter to SEC Chair Mary Jo White asking about the stock buybacks. According to the letter sent back by the SEC, Mary Jo White, the Security Exchange Commission chair, says the SEC doesn't collect the data that would let it know whether companies breach these four principles. Performing data analysis for issuer stock repurchases presents significant challenges, White writes because detailed trading data regarding repurchases is not currently available. But the safe harbor as it is, is is huge. Um, And some critics have called it uh, legalized market manipulation, this big loophole that started in, in 1982. Part of the reason companies do this is really related to how the financial markets shape how companies behave. So one thing is that increasingly the executive compensation packages are uh, equity based. So a lot of executives, more than 80 percent of their compensation comes from uh, from shares in their own companies. So they benefit from stock buybacks in a variety of ways. So one is that uh, was actually uncovered by a former SEC commissioner, Rob Jackson, where he found that 
after stock buybacks are announced. There tends to be a, a spike in share price that follows pretty immediately. And there was a lot more share selling by executives in those first few days after the announcement. So they are able to take advantage of that bump in share price. It's not an accusation, it's a fact. After the Trump tax cuts passed, billions upon billions of dollars have been used uh, for shareholder buybacks in large public companies across the United States. And in the speech that I gave, I showed that those buybacks are accompanied by, at the same time the company buys back shares, the executive sells into the buyback. Now, we were clear in the speech that that's not necessarily insider trading or fraud, but it is troubling because when an executive does a buyback, they're suggesting to the market that the stock is cheap. And the question I'm asking is, if the stock is cheap, then why is the executive selling into the buyback? The argument that I'm making is that a buyback is not necessarily the right time and place to dump your shares into the market. And let me just say something else. Mm -hmm. My study is very preliminary, but it's part of a big, broad academic discussion that's been happening for years about executives' incentives. Last year in the Review of Financial Studies, a top peer-reviewed journal, Alex Edmonds, formerly of the Wharton School, he's now advising the United Kingdom's government on buybacks, made the same point in a very similar study. He showed that when executive shares vest that they get in compensation, they're much less likely to make long-term investment. They're much more likely to engage in a buyback. Another reason is that a lot of corporate decision-making is, is shaped by projections of earnings per share quarterly. So when you buy back shares from the open market, it tends to increase earnings per share because they're just less shares in the open market. So that's, you know, another way that the financial markets drive that. It just boosts the short-term value of the executive compensation. This is what an economist, William Lozonic, calls the shift between retain and reinvest earnings to downsize and distribute earnings to shareholders. So companies used to retain a lot of their revenue and reinvest them in compensating workers, uh, in uh, research and development, in innovation, and, you know, all of these investments that are needed for long-term equitable growth. So that started breaking down in the 70s um, and has continued to break down. And you see a shift where companies just have significantly decreased investments in their workers and research and development. The payouts to shareholders have skyrocketed. And this has huge implications for workers and for our economy as a whole. Companies' earnings and, and the worker share of that was uh, more or less in tandem. And then it started shifting such that wages just didn't grow along with corporate profits. So it's the mentality of labor being a cost to be minimized um, instead of, you know, workers being partners in value creation in companies. That's obviously huge for uh, inequality. Um, so stock buybacks definitely exacerbate economic inequalities. A recent report reveals the world's nearly 3,000 billionaires increased their wealth by $5 trillion last year, a rate unprecedented in human history. I think it's 10% of the wealthiest own 
of the equity and mutual fund value. And this also exacerbates the racial wealth gap because I think 90% is owned by white households and uh, about only 1% is owned by black households and about half a percent is owned by Latinx households. So just like, you know, continuing to use stock buybacks just basically exacerbates both the racial and economic divide in this country. Also in the pandemic, right? Like corporations saying like, oh, like, you know, we have to do all these layoffs. Like we can't possibly provide like basic safety in the workplace, but they, you know, they continued spilling a ton of money into stock buybacks. And a lot of the tax cuts that were passed in 2017 by the uh, Trump administration, by Congress then, um, a lot of it was spent on stock buybacks. Trickle down just has never actually been a thing that works. This week, the Federal Reserve announced its first interest rate hike in three years. And it wasn't a total shock. Experts had anticipated this quarter point rate, with forecasts showing it's only the first of several hikes this year. It comes as a lot of Americans are feeling that pinch at the gas station and the checkout counter because of months of rising inflation, the kind of thing we haven't seen in decades. Today, the Federal Reserve is expected to hike interest rates again by three quarters of a percent. It's the fourth hike this year as it attempts to drive down surging inflation. While higher interest rates, slower growth and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. I just want to translate what Jerome Powell just said. What he calls some pain means putting people out of work, shutting down small businesses because the cost of, of uh, money goes up because the interest rates go up. I'm very worried that the Fed is going to tip this economy into recession. When we hear the word inflation, often the first place folks go is the Fed. The Fed is going to fix this, it's going to raise interest rates, it's going to slow down the economy, and it's going to get rid of the high prices. The problem with that in this particular instance is that the core drivers of inflation, a supply chain crisis, a COVID pandemic, corporate profiteering, a war in Ukraine, none of those are issues that the Fed actually has any control over, right? Jerome Powell himself said in front of a House Financial Services hearing over the summer, we can't actually address the supply side issues that are driving prices up. So let's talk about what the Fed is and isn't doing when it raises interest rates to try to bring down inflation. Let's start with gas prices. The price of gas is up 40 percent since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Chair Powell, will gas prices go down as a result of your interest rate increase? I would not think so, no. OK. Um, and um, that matters because gas prices are one of the single biggest drivers of inflation. Energy prices overall drove a third of the inflation last month, but the Fed's tools, as you say, have no impact here. So let's look at another necessity, food. Price of groceries is up nearly 12% this year. Americans feel the pinch. No matter how much groceries cost, people still got to eat. Chair Powell, will the Fed's interest rate increases bring food prices down for families? I, I wouldn't say so, no. Okay. So a Fed increase won't bring down these prices. And why? Because rate hikes won't make 
Vladimir Putin turn his tanks around and leave Ukraine. Rate hikes won't break up monopolies. Rate hikes won't straighten out the supply chain or speed up ships or stop a virus that is still causing lockdowns in some parts of the world. It's important for us to to acknowledge that the Fed exists and that, you know, it's a tool that has been used in the past to control inflation, but it's far from the only tool we have available to us. And in fact, when we actually look and unpack the drivers of higher prices, what we actually realize is, hey, there's a ton of things that we can be doing to bring down prices. You know, we can invest in a functioning supply chain. Uh, We can invest in rail. We can invest in shipping. We can invest in trucking actually like let's build a system that works right not one that falls apart anytime there's a little bit of fluctuation in demand president biden recently called for an excess profits tax on oil and gas companies let's do that more broadly right i mean oil and gas is a good place to start but let's actually you know incentivize these companies to reinvest in their own in in creating a better product rather than skimming off the top and paying out to their shareholders we can make price gouging illegal Three quarters of U.S. states have price gouging laws on the books. Let's put in place a federal statute that makes price gouging illegal. And then there's a ton of regulatory things we can do as well. The Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice can go after big corporations and break them up where necessary and tackle exploitative and extractive behavior. Look, the reason we are in a labor market recovery that is as strong as it is, and it is very strong, is precisely because Congress and the administration made investments in people and making sure that people could get through this crisis. We could have had a situation like the Great Recession. It took us six years to climb back out of the Great Recession. We climbed out of the COVID crisis in much, much less than that. That's a real testament to the the power of investments and the power of investing in people and making sure our economy is resilient and strong. You know, we've been talking about the role of corporate profiteering and supply chain snarls and a war in Ukraine, all giving these companies cover to raise their prices even more, as well as the way that they have shaped their supply chains such that they broke, right? As soon as we hit a, a bumpy patch in our in our economic health. And so let's not blame the folks who are struggling and investments in those people for inflation we're seeing right now. The inflation we're seeing right now is really born out of a series of policy choices we've made over the course of decades to hand our economy over to these big corporations. Well, there you have it. Once again, this is Newsbeat's host, Manny Faces, extending a huge, huge thank you to you for listening. Before we give an extra special shout out to our incredible guests, we thought it was important to note that there have been some positive developments, albeit on a small scale, targeting stock buybacks. For example, a little-known provision in the Inflation Reduction Act, which Congress passed back in August, includes a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. We break down more of these developments in our Substack newsletter, so please be sure to check that out after you listen. Newsbeat.substack.com You can learn more about Dr. Rakid Maboud and all the amazing work she and her team are doing at Groundwork Collaborative by checking out groundworkcollaborative.org. You can learn more about all the incredible work Natalia Renta and her team are doing at Americans for Financial Reform by visiting OurFinancialSecurity.org. Once again, you can learn more about us and what we do by subscribing for free to newsbeat.substack.com for new episode drops, important commentary, bonus material, and more. 
Check out all our previous episodes, extended guests and artist bios, and much more on your podcast app and much more at usnewsbeat.com. Please be sure to rate and review us and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Every little bit of love helps, so we thank you in advance. I want to shout out to our entire team here at Newsbeat. We are currently awaiting the results of the inaugural Signal Awards, honoring excellence in the podcast realm. We are up for an award in the news category for our previous episode, Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People. We were honored to have been chosen as a finalist. We are up against Al Jazeera and the New Republic. Uh, So we are in fine company on the journalism tip, and it's really great that our small but mighty organization is being recognized in this way. We'll find out January 10th if we're a winner. Uh, You can also, if you want, jump over to SignalAward.com and find us in the news category and vote for us as a listener's choice. It's up to you. Uh, We'll see what happens either way. And once again, we thank you for listening, for all your support and love. We'll catch you next time. Peace. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy, Prophet of Rage. And this is News Beat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick.